Welcome. It is wonderful to have you. Uh, we're getting into the last Sunday of our God of Money series. In this series, if you've been with us, we've been talking about this huge issue of money, wealth, and possessions. And it, it can surprise a lot of people to realize that Jesus talked about money almost more than he talked about anything else, more than he talked about prayer, more than he talked about heaven or hell or salvation. Jesus presented money and possessions almost as like a rival God that we choose to worship in place of the true God and Father. Uh, and, and, and it becomes this pursuit that we have. And, and as Paul talks about money, he says it actually pierces us with many griefs. This pursuit of money, this love of money pierces us and leads us into all kinds of temptation, temptations and trials. So it's something that we need to address in the church, something we need to talk about, to wrap our minds around how to think about and what to do with money so that the spiritual power it can have over our lives dissipates and we can use it the way God has called us to use it. So before I get into our, our last teaching in this series, I just want to remind you, um, what we've been doing is like, I'm not a financial advisor, so that's not what we've been doing. I'm a pastor, and so I've been trying to give biblical wisdom and spiritual direction in regard to how to think about and how to use money. But we also want to provide something really, really practical. So you may or may not have heard, but we're actually providing a free financial seminar. We've got a Christian guy who's in the finance world, uh, a good friend of APA. His name is Lane Cuthbert. Uh, he's coming next Sunday. Uh, so if you register, and you need to register online so that we know you're coming, if you register, go to apaonline.ca slash events and sign up for the financial seminar. You can do that right now. Get your phone out right now. I don't care if you missed the first five minutes of the sermon. Get your phone out. Sign up for it. We're serving lunch after church. There's free child care. And then it's about a 90-minute seminar, budgeting, financial management, all the tools that you need to get a handle on your personal finances. So listen, like, there's no deal better than this. Free financial advice, a free lunch, and free babysitting for an hour and a half. Like, you would be crazy not to sign up for this, okay? So please do that. Do that soon so that we can be ready for you next Sunday after church. All right, back to the message. Uh, as we close the series, I want to talk to you about the secret to true wealth, the secret to true wealth. If you're an Instagram scroller or a YouTube scroller, or now if you're on threads, uh, if you're doing any of those things and you're scrolling through things, you often see these really, they call them clickbait titles, right? It's a clickbait title. It's, it gives you some sort of fantastic title or promise or makes you curious about something so that you'll click and so you'll see their ads and, and you know, they make revenue, these content creators. So you see these clickbaits, stuff like, he was a child star. You'll never believe what he's doing today. Oh, what's he doing today? But they don't tell you in the headline. You have to click through and see all their ads and all the way at the bottom. It's like, he works at McDonald's. Okay, you could have said that at the beginning, right? Or she opened the door and turned on the light. You'll never believe what happened next, right? You click through, the light came on. That's what happened next, okay? But if, if today, if, my, if, if this was a clickbait title, if this was a video that you were scrolling through and you found it, this would be my clickbait title for the sermon today. Preacher reveals the shocking biblical secret of true wealth. You'll be amazed, okay? Uh, but normally, if you click on a clickbait title, it takes forever to find out the secret that the person is pretending exists. But I am not going to make you wait till the end of the sermon and be underwhelmed. I'm going to tell you right away, one minute in, so that you can decide if you want to listen the rest of the time or if you want to skip out 
for an early lunch, okay? So here is the secret, the shocking biblical secret to true wealth. Are you ready? Contentment. Are you amazed? Are you underwhelmed? Are you ready for lunch? Did you expect some sort of get-rich-quick scheme? Did you expect some sort of guaranteed investment with massive returns? No, we're talking about true wealth, not the superficial wealth provided by money and possessions. True wealth actually transcends what we have. True wealth is not about large sums of money. What I think true wealth is, is what people are looking for when they accumulate money and possessions. True wealth is what people think they'll get when they have lots of money and possessions. But what people are actually looking for when they accumulate possessions and money is the sense that they have everything they need, is the sense that their needs are taken care of, is, is a sense of security and a sense of safety. That's what they think money and possessions are going to bring them. So true wealth is so much more than money and possessions. One of the ways we can get to a place where we're not always thinking about needing more is by learning to be content with what we already have. The shocking biblical truth to true wealth is to learn to be content. And here's another secret. You can learn to be content even if you don't have a lot of money. You can learn to be content even if you don't have a lot of money. An article I read this week on, in, on uh, Psychology Today's website said this, the greatest wealth that we can possess is contentment, not money. Because the pursuit of money can cause all kinds of psychological stress, but learning to be content can lead to healing. Now, I'm not preaching from psychology today, but what I wanted to show was even those outside the church are recognizing these biblical truths, that wealth is not found in the accumulation of possessions, but it is something much more profound and transcendent than that. So let me first read a couple of verses today, go through them, and then give a couple of practical pastoral points at the end. Let's go back to a scripture we've read a couple times in this series already. It's kind of been a foundational text, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 9 to 10, Paul writes this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul argues that the pursuit of wealth in and of itself and the love of money leads to traps, temptations, grief. He doesn't say, and let me be clear again, he doesn't say that it's sinful or wrong to be wealthy. He doesn't say that it's sinful or wrong to make money or to be good at making money. Paul's focusing on the heart. He's focusing on our motivations. If your life is driven by the love of money, if it's driven by everything about your identity is about making more money, he says, watch out. He's warning us that of the pursuit of money, the love of money leads to all kinds of grief and difficulty. Now, we shouldn't make judgments about people based on their wealth or their lack of wealth. It's easy to wrongly assume that, that the rich are immoral, greedy, uncaring. It's easy to wrongly assume that po the poor are lazy, irresponsible, or untrustworthy. 
Those are false assumptions based on our own judgmental hearts. And they actually say more, if I make judgments like that, they say more about how money controls my heart than about the person I'm judging. We live in a world of comparisons, and what we always do is we line ourselves up and compare ourselves with others. We look at people wealthier than us, and we look at people not as wealthy as us, and we judge in both directions. We say people who aren't as wealthy as us, we say, if they were only as wise as I am. If they only had worked as hard as me, they could be in a much better state. And then we look at people who are wealthier than us, and they say, well, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend it like that. I'd be much more generous. I'd, I'd, I'd spend my money much more generously, and I'd love people better with, with my money. I wouldn't do what they did. And in both ways, we're revealing our own pride and the way money shapes our hearts toward other people. And here's what we have to realize. Some people are rich because they've been wise. They've done it ethically. They've made smart decisions. They've trusted in God's provision, and God has blessed them. Some people are rich because they've been unethical. They've cheated people. They've gained their wealth at the expense of others. There are righteous rich, and there are unrighteous rich. Some people are poor because they've made bad decisions. They've been unwise. They've spent their money poorly and gotten into a cycle of debt. Some people are poor because they refused to do unethical things. They've refused to trample on people in order to make wealth. They've stayed integral and therefore they haven't made money. So there are righteous poor and there are unrighteous poor. We can't make an accurate judgment solely based on someone's net worth. So when Paul talks about the pursuit of money being a trap, he's not making a simple judgment statement that all rich people have fallen into the trap of a love of money, and he's not saying that all poor people are victims of someone else's sin, and we can't fall into the same trap of inappropriate judgments either. But let's back up because there's some helpful context to what Paul is talking about here, and it comes before verse 9 and 10. See, Paul, in, in his letter to Timothy, Timothy's his protege, he's a young pastor leading a big church, and Paul is mentoring him as he has done for many years, and he's telling Timothy what to teach the people of his church, sound doctrine and helpful advice and things that are practical Christian, things about practical Christian living. But here he had just been giving a warning about false teachers that will try to insert themselves in the church. And one of the, the features of a false teacher is that they use their outward godliness as a means for financial gain. That all the things they do, all the preaching, all the ministering, all the ways they pastor people and all their ministry is solely out of a heart motivated for financial gain. Paul says that's a huge red flag when you're looking at ministers of the gospel. Paul says uh, godliness is good, but the motivation of money is a red flag. He says it in verse 6 to 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So I don't always recommend this, especially when we're talking about money, but if you wanted to put Paul's statement here into a formula, this is what it is. It's very simple. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. By godliness, Paul's referring to devotion to God, worship of God. It's the things we do practically to worship and serve God, like preaching the gospel or serving the poor or volunteering at church or going to prayer meetings, giving an offering, these and other acts 
of godliness. Godliness plus contentment. Contentment in the Bible refers to a sense of sufficiency. Someone who is content is able to say honestly, I have all I need. Can you think of moments and spaces in your life where you just, you're just there and you go, I have everything I need right now. For me, I was thinking about this, and, and I've talked about this before, but when I'm sitting in my gray Italian leather chair with a book in one hand, I like real books, even though I use an iPad to preach, I like real books, you know, real paper, and I've got a coffee in the other hand, I have all that I need. If the house is also quiet, right? <laughs> Kids are outside or asleep or something. I have all that I need. It's just this sense of sufficiency of, of I don't need anything else in this space. That's what contentment is. So here's the crux of Paul's argument. If you're play acting your faith, if you're play acting a godly life just for the purpose of gaining some sort of advantage, just for the purpose of getting some sort of prize or reward or good feeling, especially if it's just to get money out of it, then it's a bankrupt endeavor which will lead to pain and sin and grief. If your motivation is to get something, if your motivation is to be rewarded for your godliness, it's bankruptcy. If you're just in it for the rewards, it won't work. But... If you're living a godly life because your motivation is godliness itself, godliness itself, the desire to be like God, the desire to worship God, the desire to be in his presence, to experience his goodness and his grace, if your motivation is godliness itself, then it leads to great gain. You see the irony there? It's like when you're trying to gain something, you won't. When you're not trying to gain something, you will. It's like Jesus says, whoever gives up their life will gain it. Whoever tries to keep it will lose it. If your desire is merely reward, it's a bankrupt faith. The person who says, I just love being godly, I don't need anything from it, is the person who will get the most out of being godly. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It leads to be able to honestly say, I have all that I need. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. This is what Paul's talking about. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's an interesting uh, quote the author of Hebrews uses to support the argument of why you should be content. Because he's quoting the book of Joshua. Joshua and the Israelites were on the edge of the promised land. They were about to enter in to begin the conquest of Canaan. And God said to Joshua, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. Go and do what I've called you to do. And, and Joshua, you're going to be scared. You're going to be, you're going to be frightened. You're going to be intimidated. It's going to be a challenging uh, endeavor that you're about to take on. But I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And so the author of Hebrews says that's what it means to be content. It's to recognize that whatever situation you're in, whatever God's calling you to, whatever is intimidating you, whatever's frightening you in front of you, God says, I'm with you. And when I'm with you, you have all that you need. When you have God, you have everything you need. No matter what you're facing, you will always have enough when you have God. Do you recognize that? That's the true source of what it means to be 
content. Material wealth is temporary and can be lost. Bank accounts can drain. Investments can tank. Assets can lose their value. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will never leave you or forsake you. So when we remember that he is with us, we can deal with any situation with confidence no matter what we lack. Because when God is with us, we can honestly say, I have everything I need. Let me share with you another scripture before I give some practical application. One of the most famous and widely quoted scriptures in the New Testament is Philippians 4.13. And just by that reference, a bunch of you know what I'm talking about. The most common way I hear it quoted, because there's different versions that people quote, the most common way I hear it quoted is this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Anyone love that verse? I can do all things through Christ. Some of you are nervous that I'm setting you up. Don't worry. I love that verse. I love it. It's a fantastic scripture, and I think it has lots of application. Um, But I don't think it's like a blank check verse that says anything you want to do, Christ is there to just give you, you know, you know, like I can't say I can pick my house up over my head through Christ who strengthens me. Like I'm not, I don't think that's what the verse is saying, right? I can throw my car over a mat. Like that's not what it's saying. It actually has a very specific context in Philippians chapter four. So Paul, in Philippians four, What's happening here is he's written this letter. We studied Philippians around this time last year. He's written this letter to the Philippian church because they have been partners in the gospel with him, which means they've financially supported his ministry. They're, they're, uh, They're invested in the same things together. And so they had sent him a financial gift. And so he's replying with this letter to the Philippians. It's a friendship letter. So here's what he says in verse 12, right before this famous verse. He says, I know what it is to be in need, And I know what it is to have plenty. Listen to this. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You see the context there? Paul's not saying, hey, pick up a car and throw it. He's saying, listen, you can be content if you have a lot, and you can be content if you have little. He says, I've learned this secret I've been on this missionary journey for a long time. There's been times where I'm, I've got a full tummy and I'm feeling strong and I have everything, everything I could ever hope for. And there's been times where I'm in jail and I've just been beaten and I'm starving and everybody's abandoned me. And even then, I've learned what it means to be content because Christ strengthens me. Because he will never leave me or forsake me. He's with me no matter my situation. So what Paul is saying to the Philippians is he's saying, thank you for the financial gift. I appreciate it. It's going to supply my needs. But you know what? If you didn't send it, I would have been fine. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's amazing to get a bit of a different perspective on the context of that verse. Now, when Paul says he's learned the secret of being content, There's no secret of how to be content. The secret is contentment. But he says he's learned how to do it, which means that contentment isn't natural. And we know it isn't natural through observation because our kids come out of the womb kicking and screaming and crying for all their needs, right? Instantly, they want something. Instantly, they're attached to mom and they need more and need and need and need. And all of us, we grow up, we have to, we have to work those, those instincts out of ourselves to learn how to be content, whether we have plenty or whether we have little. But it is something that can be learned. 
And it's learned, in Paul's case, through experience. So let me give you two, I think, biblical, practical ways we can grow in our ability to be content. Number one, we practice thankfulness. Practicing thankfulness teaches us how to be content with what we have. Thankfulness redirects us from always striving for more and helps us focus on the blessings we already have. Daily thankfulness is a daily spiritual discipline of appreciation for what God has already given us. Uh, Psychologists from the University of California and the University of Miami performed a study. They had three groups of people, and they were instructed to write down daily or weekly thoughts. And the first group of people were instructed to write down daily uh, gratitudes. What are you thankful for today? Things that happened that you appreciated. The second group of people was instructed to write down daily irritations. What are the things that annoyed and bothered you today? And the third group of people, someone said that's easy. (laughs) It is, right? That's natural. Uh, And the third group of people wasn't given any instruction. Just write down things in your day that impacted you. So it could be negative or positive. What they found was after 10 weeks, those who focused on gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. What surprised them was those who wrote about gratitude ended up exercising more, had fewer visits to the doctor than those who focused on their irritations and aggravations. Thankfulness literally changes your perspective on life, your emotional condition, and your physical health. Harvard Health Publishing had this to say about gratitude. Gratitude helps people feel more more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. And gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. They're just catching up to what the scriptures have been teaching us for thousands of years. This attitude of thanksgiving, as I said at the beginning of the service, we come into God's presence already thankful. Why? Because he's already given us everything we need. We don't show up at church to get something from God. We show up at church to give him our praise and our thanks because he has already done so much for us. Listen, some of us say, I will be more thankful And I will be content when I have more. You know what the truth is? If you're not thankful now, you won't be thankful later. If you can't learn to be content with what you have, you will never be content with what you have later. We see this through biblical uh, characters in the Bible. Adam and Eve, they had everything all of us could possibly want. But they weren't content. There was one tree they were told not to eat from. And they weren't content to not be allowed to eat from it. So they took. You go forward in the Bible and some of the richest people in history, King Solomon, the guy had 700 wives. I thought they said he was wise. I don't know. I don't know. why. I, I couldn't handle more than one if I'm, t- if I'm telling the truth. But he still needed 300 concubines on top of that. King David also had a harem of women, and still he wasn't satisfied. He saw a woman bathing across the street. She was already married. He brought her over. He killed her husband. You know what keeps a man faithful to his wife? Contentment. Being satisfied in the woman God has given you. Warts and all. 
We all have warts. We're all gonna find ways to be dissatisfied. My wife has lots of reasons to be dissatisfied in me, but her faithfulness to me is based on contentment in what God has given her. Not that she's settling <laughs> or that I'm settling. Oh, God, I'm going down the wrong direction here. Uh, <laughs> but when we are content with what God has provided, it keeps us faithful to him. <clears throat> John uh, D. Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men in the world in his time, he was asked how much money would be enough. He said, how much does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And I think he was speaking with wisdom, saying, listen, it's never enough. Money is never going to make me happy. That's not the source of true satisfaction. Ecclesiastes 5.10, here's Solomon who did have some wisdom. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Even if you get the raise, you won't be satisfied with it because you'll find ways to spend it and still be in just as much debt as you were in before. Until we learn to be content with what we have, we'll never be content with what we have in the future. So one of the ways uh, I practice this is just in prayer. And I, I did this just this morning knowing uh, I was teaching on this today. But I do this regularly, often on a prayer walk, where I make sure that my entire prayer is only thankfulness. And uh, because I think sometimes my prayers are, can turn into me just being, content, uh, being discontent and just saying, God, I don't have enough of this. I don't have enough of that. Please fix this. Please fix that. I'm praying about my lack. And God wants to hear about our needs. That's very biblical. We're supposed to bring our needs to God. But sometimes I'm just very intentional that my entire prayer is thankfulness. And there's the, you know, the first things that are easy, my, you know, my home and my family and my job and all the big things. But then like you can just get into it. And man, you can talk about just the little things and you know, the trees in your neighborhood and, and you know, all kinds of things. And if, if you do that, I honestly, by the end of that prayer this morning, my entire soul felt whole in a way that it wasn't when I started praying. Because sometimes our prayers are just complaints and discontent, and we leave our prayers feeling like we lack. We just focus on thanksgiving. It change, changes our entire attitude. Uh, second practical thing we can do to learn to be content is to practice simplicity. Practice simplicity. One day, Jesus was approached by a guy who was upset at his brother for not properly sharing the family inheritance. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus replied like this, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In other words, we can't find meaning and purpose and value and direction in the things that we own, in the wealth in our bank accounts. It's impossible. Life cannot be built in a healthy way on our possessions. And the question is, like, do we believe Jesus was right? Like, will we actually trust him? Or we, will we go all the way and try to find out for ourselves? Or will we actually trust Jesus that life is not built on an abundance of possessions? What if there's a way to live that isn't obsessed with having everything and doing everything and experiencing everything everybody else has and does and experiences? What if life is built on something else? So simplicity is actually an ancient Christian practice of intentionally living on less than what you have. Simplicity is about intentionally living below 
your means. Refusing to be controlled by the expectations of the world, which say you have to spend your money in a certain way, you have to have a certain income, you have to have a certain lifestyle to be happy. Simplicity isn't about living with nothing, but it's about intentionally living with less. Reversing our desires so that we're not always desiring more, but we're actually bringing our desires to the place of our possessions and saying, I'm thankful for what I have and I can live with this. There's a modern version of simplicity in our culture. The word is used minimalism. It's just a secular spin on an ancient Christian practice of simplicity. The, the part about it that doesn't work is Jesus isn't there. <laughs> There's no source of life. But when we practice simplicity and remember that all we have is found in Jesus, we can find life in that. And what happens when we live below our means is we have excess that we can share with others who need it. We can be a blessing to the world around us. We can be generous with the things of God. We have excess that we're not always living and bumping up against our means. We are ready to give when the opportunity comes. So practically speaking, is there something you have or you're pursuing that you could live without? It's not going to add any extra meaning to your life. It's not going to make you more content. Is there something you have that you could give to someone else who needs it? You could sell and give money to, to a needy organization or a person who, who has needs. Is there, do you need to have the latest gadget or, or the new item? Or can you, can you live with what you have or, or buy used instead? Is there space in your life for generosity and looking for opportunities to bless others. Living more simply helps us fight against that constant pressure to gain more and have more and to match everybody else's lifestyle, and it helps teach us to be content. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 6, this time down the page a bit to verse 17 to 19. Paul, still in the same line of thought, he says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Is wealth bad? No, but it is uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Here's the amazing thing. The Bible doesn't say that we don't get to enjoy our lives. The Bible doesn't say that we can't take nice vacations and we can't have nice things. God blesses us and allows us to enjoy our blessings. That's wonderful. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We shouldn't feel bad about that. We just shouldn't put our hope in those blessings. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions, but there is a life that is truly life. There is a life that we can take hold of even now that brings that sense of well-being and that sense of I have everything I need. Put your hope in God, not in wealth. God's greatest blessing to us, God's greatest blessing to us is his presence. Like he said to Joshua, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you realize how wealthy you are in that statement? God is with you. The creator, the sustainer of all things, God is with you. 
which means that it, there is no situation in which you are not fully supplied. You may be in a situation like the Israelites where you're on the edge of new territory, entering a world that's unfamiliar, full of challenges and change. It may be a new season of life or facing a difficulty you've never faced. You may be starting a family or saying goodbye to a family member. You may, be, you may be starting a new job or entering unemployment. You may be starting a relationship or finding yourself alone for the first time in a while. Or maybe you're not on the edge of something new, but you feel like you're wandering in the desert, or even further back like the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. But in all of those circumstances, in all of those places, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He sent his son to die on a cross for you. He gave us his Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you and counsel you and befriend you. No one is more wealthy than the person who knows with all their heart that God is with them. And then we can honestly say, because I have God, I have everything I need. Band, will you come back up? We're going to close with a song. And I invite you to stand me. We're going to pray together for a moment as the band prepares. We're going to sing that song as they prepare faithful to the end. And it's a reminder of how faithful God has been to us. It's a reminder we need to give ourselves regularly so that we can remember to be thankful for what God has done, not just continuing to, to ask for more and hope for more, but to be thankful and satisfied with the work of God in our lives already. But what I want to do is I want to, I want to just bow our heads in prayer. If you close your eyes with me, and I want to do two things. I want to start just by in our hearts practicing that thankfulness. Just starting to list in your own heart and mind the things that you are thankful for, big and small. It may be easy. It may be difficult. But just start to thank him. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Start to list it. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Keep going. If you have to dig deep, just keep going. Just list even the smallest things. Thank you. Thank you, God. Things from the past, things in the present. Thank you, God. 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 Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for our spiritual family. Thank you for your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done for us. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the beautiful place we get to live. We thank you even in the difficult moments for the way you are shaping us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And now with faith, with this attitude of thanksgiving, I want you to say in your own time, in your own way, I want you to say, this is invitation. I'm not forcing anybody to say anything, but this is invitation. I want you to say something like this to the Lord. Because you are with me, I have everything I need. Because you are with me, I have everything I need. Because you are with me, I have everything I need. Thank you, God. Lord, I believe that is true. You have promised to never leave us or forsake us, which means that in any situation, 
in any circumstance, no matter what difficulty we face, no matter what lack we have in our lives, when you are with us, we are fully supplied. Help us, Lord, to be on guard against all kinds of greed. Help us, Lord, to walk not in dissatisfaction, discontent, but with contentment for all the good you have blessed us with. Help us, Lord, daily to walk in thanksgiving, thankfulness, and gratitude for all that you have done for us. Help us not, Lord, to be reaching and grasping and always seeking more like the world does, but to sit in the peace of knowing that you are our provider. And when we trust in you, we will never lack. The Lord is our shepherd. We have all that we need. And thank you, God, because we have you. We have all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a song of worship together.